inside a very special edition of the Justin Ayers podcast. I am your host, Justin Ayers. Folks, this week, there's a lot going on in the baseball world. Of course, we had the Baseball Hall of Fame induction announcement on Tuesday night. So I wanted to keep the baseball theme rolling, and I wanted to bring back on one of my good friends. It is the now current manager of the Bowie Bay Sox AA team in the Orioles minor league system, Kyle Moore. And I think I've already had my my full interview with Kyle. Uh, so just to rewind for a second, in the, in the summer of 2019, I did a bunch of interviews with the Delmarva Shorebirds minor league baseball team. I called it Shorebirds Sit Down. I thought it was a pretty snazzy name. Uh, and so the last interview, so I did six interviews. Number six on that on that list was Kyle Moore. And at the time, Kyle Moore was leading the Delmarva Shorebirds to their best season in franchise history. He had all these like big-name stars on the team. He had uh, Adley Rutschman was there for a little bit. Grayson Rodriguez was there for the entire year. Like household names that, you know, Orioles fans know and like are looking forward to seeing in Baltimore. Kyle had all these guys in 2019 in Delmarva. They had all this success. And so I sat down with him, had a really great time. Uh, and that was the full episode that I think I put uh, on this feed a little while ago. can't remember exactly when I dropped that one. But, so that was 2019. Fast forward all the way through then, stayed in contact. Uh, he followed me on Twitter. We, we DM'd a little bit, just like, hey, how's it going? Merry Christmas, that kind of thing. And so I really wanted to have him back on and, and talk about all that's happened. Because since 2019 to now, uh, of course, 2020, there was no minor league season. He was supposed to be the manager of the Frederick Keys, which was uh, going to be the, the high A affiliate for the Orioles. During the whole minor league reshuffling, they lose their affiliation, and the whole minor league system, everything got thrown off. And of course, like I said, there was no minor league season in 20. So in 2021, he comes back and manages the Aberdeen Ironbirds, which becomes the high A affiliate for the Orioles, does a fantastic job, gets reunited with all of his old pals from Delmarva, like Grayson Rodriguez and my pal Johnny Reiser. Uh, And so now the organization has entrusted him to lead their double A team. Uh, he is now the manager of the Bowie Bay Sox. Uh, lots, again, lots of high-level prospects are going to be funneled through that team this year. It's going to be so much fun to watch. Uh, and so Kyle's the man. We, we, we sat down and did an hour-plus conversation, which anytime somebody gives me an hour-plus of their time, I'm forever grateful because uh, you know he, he didn't have to come on A, and he didn't have to B, give me so much of his time. But he did. It was fantastic. So uh, I'm going to stop talking, and I'm going to kick this over to perhaps one of my best interviews I've ever done. Here is the manager of the Bowie Bay Sox, Kyle Moore. Enjoy. I am now joined by a very special guest. It is the manager of the Bowie Bay Sox and my old pal. It is Kyle Moore. Kmo, how are we doing? Yeah, doing great. Thanks for having me. Really, really excited. And uh, it's a chilly night here in Sarasota. So uh, the, the folks around here are bundled up, but, but not really. So do, doing well. What, what's a chilly night in Sarasota look like? Last night it was in the 40s. I know people around here kind of go crazy when it gets down to that low. You'd think people are pe- pressing the panic button, button, but uh, it's probably 50 something out there right now. It's 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 perfect, really. But no, it's a little cooler than usual, though. So, yeah, no, Florida winter. They just have no idea what to do. Um, so you know, I want to take it back because, uh, like I said, I, I, we've known each other since gosh 2019 now, which is just crazy that it's been that long. We we did an interview. Uh, you were manager of the Delmarva Shorebirds at the time. You were super awesome with your time then. It was a really great time. Um, and and ever since then, I've just been like your biggest fan. So I just want to first say thank you for your time then, and thank you for hopping on today. No, well, appreciate it, man. I need all the fans I can get in this business. You know how this business is, but uh, I appreciate that. And I've, I've always enjoyed our interviews, so I got no problem hopping on with you, man, at any time. I love it. So last time we talked, we talked a little bit about your time at the University of Alabama. You were a catcher there for four years. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the dynamic there because I know we talked about you were an awesome high school football player. And at the time, I think when you got to Alabama, it wasn't necessarily like the perennial powerhouse it is today. Like, did you go to that college think that you could uh, potentially play two sports, baseball and football? Yeah, I, I thought about it. I thought, man, that would be cool to do that. But I think once you uh, once once I set foot on campus and saw how uh, how how the competition was in in every in every sport and every position at every sport, I, I learned really quickly that it wasn't going to be, you know, for me to play two. Um, I, I one of my dreams as a, as a younger kid was to play college football. So it was hard for me to let go of that dream. You know, it was like I had to let go of it at 18. I, do I either transfer somewhere and go play football or do I just go, you know, maybe I could have gone to go play football right out of high school. So that was something that was definitely hard for me to let go of. You know, it's hard for, for a young kid sometimes to let go of dreams. But 
one of mine was to play college football. And, and uh, at the time, I just thought, you know what, I, I really want to play professional baseball. And I want to I want to play baseball for as long as I possibly can. So I'm going to just do the baseball thing. And and that's kind of what led me there. I, I never, uh, you know, once once we were we were an OK team football wise at Alabama when I got there. Uh, and then the whole the whole tide changed when Saban got hired. As you know, we we uh, we had a pretty good year with Mike Shula one year, and 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 we couldn't quite close the deal. I think Florida or somebody beat us, but uh, Saban got there, and the whole culture and the whole environment changed. And so it was fun to be able to watch that uh, from from about as close as you can without being on the team, having you know sharing a, a workout, sharing a, a weight room, sharing some of the facilities, which which we didn't get to share too many because he's he's really. Uh, He's really a stickler for that, but we did get to see a lot, of, a lot of how you know how they do things and the intensity they bring. So that was that was beneficial for me for sure. I'm fascinated by that dynamic because you're right. You, you go from Mike Shula, who was an okay coach, and then you just have Nick Saban come in and just light the world on fire. Um, but did you notice that drastic change when when Saban entered the building? Like, could you tell as soon as he got to Alabama that things were going to be so much different than they were in the past? No, I mean, I mean, honestly, I, I, I mean, he's maybe the greatest college football coach of, of all time. But I always remind people when they're like, "Oh, he's an Alabama fan." You know, we lost to to La Monroe when I was in school there. I was in the stands, and we we got our tails beat by La Monroe, and Nick Saban was a coach. So it wasn't like he came in and just started pressing buttons, and the next thing you know, his schemes just beat everybody. Um, the one thing I always tell people that we we actually shared a parking lot with a football team. And the baseball field was right beside the practice facility in football. So when you pulled in the parking lot, you saw everyone, everyone who was at the football facility. It wasn't the football field, but it was their practice facility. And uh, my wife and I were just talking about this the other day. In January, the, you know, the baseball team's revving up. I mean, we're going pretty much seven days a week. And every single day when we would go to the facility, that black Mercedes was out front before we got there in January as a, as a team baseball practice. And it's like, what are you doing in January? But every single day he was there before we got there and he was there when we left. So it was like, wow, man, like, um, with all due respect, I mean, yeah, we got beat by La Monroe and we had a terrible year, his first year there, but he was doing something special then, you know, and then all of a sudden it paid dividends later, which, which obviously, um, you know, the whole tide changed when we started getting better players there. But uh, and I guess that's what he was doing. I don't know. But I know he was there all the time. I mean, 12 hour days in January. Come on. Well, what is the old joke? It's like uh, anything that Nick Saban does is just one thing that's taking his time away from like recruiting and drawing up schemes. It's like if they, it's like the national championship that they've just lost. It's like, well, you know what? You know, he'll get a head start on recruiting for the next year. But how much fun was that to be a part uh, of the University of Alabama athletics at that time? I mean, there's there's so many, like you said, the, the big names started to trickle in football-wise, like the Mark Ingrams, the Julio Joneses. Like, how much fun was that to be, you know, sharing a parking lot and being close to those guys? I mean, it was a blast. I mean, it was something that I, I kind of fell backwards into because, like, Nick Saban and all those great, great players weren't there when I signed there. So then you kind of, you, you know, I kind of fell backwards into it. And it was, it was tremendous. I mean, it's like some of the greatest entertainment on earth is college football. And then here we have this, this big program with all these super, you know, players. Um, I remember getting, I got hurt once late in my career. I had a little elbow issue where I got some scope work done and where I did my rehab was in the football facility and they're, they're really nice state of the art facility. And I, I was, I would oftentimes find myself sitting right beside Trent Richardson and it would be, and I, and I, I can always remember thinking like, Seen him on TV, big dude, awesome, athletic, not really just whatever, not really thinking about it. And I remember the first day he walked in and sat down on a training table beside me, and I could not take my eyes off of how big his arms were. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy's arms are bigger than my legs, legitimately. And I was, I was big. I mean, I wasn't small. It was like 210 pounds and big. And so that's when, for me, I was like, maybe there is something different, you know, in the water here. These guys are – these guys are ginormous. I, I've never seen a, a, someone that big, and he was a tailback, you know, and he was, I was right there beside him, as, you know, as a physical therapist was probably making me cry at the time, but, uh, but it was, it was, it was a special treat to be close to that program just as a fan. I mean, I'm a fan now, I'm just a fan, but it's a, to be an Alabama football fan the last 10 years has been, you know, something we'll probably never see again, honestly. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how anybody's ever going to stack up to that you know 
Absolutely. And you mentioned Nick Saban. He, he came in, he started pressing the right buttons. The recruits started coming in, the long hours, all that. But as a coach yourself now, like, do you take anything away from how Nick Saban runs a program or just anything? I mean, obviously it's different sports, but, you know, uh, being around, uh, being a leader of men, do you take anything away from Nick Saban? I mean, I do. I wish I, I wish I could say that I had, you know, access, more access or, or, or more of an, you know, inside information relationship with, with people that were closer to that. But I mean, I've read everything, all of the books he's ever written. I've, I've, I've really studied how he, he conducts his, his press conferences and his media. And I think he certainly strategically uh, handles the media in a certain way that is, you know, obviously, uh, the best. I mean, and some, some folks would, would argue that it's the best. So 100%, I mean, I, I study him. I study him and I try to learn as much about him as I possibly can from as many resources as I can. And, um, you know, I, I just, I still know a lot of people that are, that are close with the program. Um, not, not that anybody's like giving me inside stories or anything like that, but our, our head athletic trainer for the baseball team was this lady named Ginger Gil, Gilmore. And she's now with the football team, has been with the football team ever since Saving got there. And I, you know, I get stories from people like that about just how intense he is and how how great of a how great of a process he produces. So I, I definitely, if there's one thing that I that I probably have taken from what I how I think he does things, it's just that the process trumps everything. Like you, you know, he's not out there trying to win ball games in January or February, or March. He's not trying to win a ball game. And that's the same with me. I'm not out here thinking about how we're going to win a ball game in July in Bowie. You know, it's about are we going to do the right thing today to be a champion today in January? And I think that based on hearing him speak and hearing reading the books that he's written, uh, that's how that's how he became great. You know, he's a he's a process oriented champion every day, January, April, May. I mean, the May, May, like what are most guys doing? Most guys might be at the beach or something. I don't know where he's at. He's at, but it probably ain't the beach, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I noticed from this past national championship, I watched like the post-game press conferences. He did, I think he had maybe the quarterback and one other player up at the podium with him. And he ended the podium, he ended his presser and he was basically saying that like, uh, you know, the blame falls on him. It's not these guys' fault. Basically just standing on the table and, and having his guys back at all times, um, which I had never really seen that side of him. Obviously you see like the the running out of the tunnel, the, the half times with Holly Rowe or whatever, but I, I just, that really stood out to me. Like, do you think that the, the unabashed, like having your guys back at, at every facet of the game, do you think that's something that uh, more people should do? And is that something that yourself, you, you try to emulate? Yeah, absolutely. Great, great point. Because that is another thing uh, that I try to take from him every chance I get to, to watch him. Uh, I remember when he said, when he told Bryce Young uh, and, and um, the linebacker, I can't think of his name, but to sit down and ha he basically said he didn't want their, you know, this season to be defined by one loss. And these guys played their tail off to, in order to just, I mean, they're down whatever they were down to Auburn with a couple of minutes left, and they shouldn't even been really played in the national championship game had the, those two guys not played phenomenal for, the, for, you know, for the last parts of the season. So um, respected the heck out of that. I, I think probably probably even even bolder of a moment was, was a few years back. I don't remember the player's name or who it was, but – he had the back of a player once that had some serious off-field issues. He, he had broken some team rules. He had some serious off-field issues. The one thing that I love about Nick Saban is he never, he never tells the media what that player did to break a team rule. That's the first way I think he has the players back tremendously. And the second thing is he, I remember him saying something to the media like, what do you guys want me to do? You want me to kick him off the team? You want me to ridicule him? You want me to do this and do that and that? And so he truly cared about the kid. You know what I mean? Like he wanted the kid to be a great man. And it was, it was obvious and it was like real. It was, it was real. It wasn't like he was just saying that because all the cameras were on, you know what I mean? Like he, he truly had the kids back and he was going to do everything he could um, to, to make that, that kid understand what it took to be a great person whenever Alabama football was over. And I think that's why you see so many players come play there. And also why so many, um, why the why the culture that they have is created because he does man he has players backs uh, no matter what he doesn't air out grievances everything's in house and uh, it's it's fun to watch man I tell you what, it's fun to sometimes a lot of the times I find myself watching the game and I don't even listen to the game I'll just watch it I'll be moving around doing something whatever 
And then that press conference comes on. I'm like, everybody be quiet. Hang on. I'll turn up to about 60. I'm like, let me hear what, you know, let me tune in real quick. What do we got? What do we got here? So that's, that's me. That's how I watch, watch Alabama football. He's, he's the gold standard in every facet of the game. Um, so you as a manager of the minor leagues and also a college coach, you have a lot of similarities. We, we talked about like you're managing guys in your late teens, early twenties. It's a very formative time in these guys' lives. Like, is that a responsibility of a manager, but also kind of a mentor, something that you take lightly? No, I don't take it lightly at all. I mean, that's something that I, I, if anything, take, take super serious. Um, with a professional, with a professional level, is different because I would say that you're you're not necessarily asked to be a mentor. You're not necessarily like expected to be this this person that that cares about about another kid. But but I am, and I do, and I think that uh, like what when I tell all the the younger younger coaches that ask me, or or when I talk about spring training and what we want to get out of spring training, I always tell tell everybody that you know, our number one goal in spring training is to start building elite relationships because no matter what type of information you have with the player, everybody got the same information in baseball, really. Now, information is getting so crazy that you could get anything. I mean, you could type on this thing and you could pull up anything about anybody from the time they were 12 to the time they are however old they are now. Everybody's got the same information. But how elite is your relationship going to be with that player as a person, as a true, honest, just person? So that whenever that coaching moment presents itself, when it sets it on the tee, are you going to be able to jump on it? Are you going to be able to tackle it? And I tell all of our young guys that all the time, like, look, don't be overcoaching the spring training about a guy's mechanics and this, that, and the other. Build an elite relationship with them. Build an elite relationship with them. So then when, when May gets here and you, and you really got to tell them something and you need them to hear it and you need them to take it to heart, you've built that elite relationship. And, and so that's, that's where, uh, for me, it's not just baseball. It's really not baseball at all. Baseball is our, our sport, and I love it, and it's the greatest game ever. But it's about building a lead relationship with a player so that, so that also, hey, one day when this guy's seven, seven years out of play, he's going to call me and say, hey, dude, what, what you got on this? And I'm going to say, I'm going to shoot him straight, and I'm going to love him. You know, I'm going to love on him, and I'm going to tell him, just like I, I told him when he was 21 years old when he was probably sitting in my, op- in my office in Aberdeen. So that's what it's about for me. I, I take that ultimately serious. That's on the very – very top of my list. I, I figure back when I interviewed a whole bunch of guys on the shorebirds, literally everybody I talked to had nothing but glowing reviews of just like the way you, you handle a dugout, just like the way you foster such a great positive work environment for those guys. So I, I thought that was awesome. And I really wanted to bring that up. Um, I, I did want to ask, so from the university of Alabama, how did you get into the Orioles farm system? I don't think I ever asked you about that. Uh, how was that transition to, to pro ball like for you? It was, it was, it was a crazy ride. It was a very unlikely, you know, thing that happened to me. I, I, uh, I, I never got drafted, which, which has always been a little chip on my shoulder, you know, especially than having played in pro ball. And to be quite honest, you, you play next to guys and you're like, he got drafted in the 15th round and I didn't, I didn't get drafted. Really? What? What? Like 24th round. What? Really? Like we had 50 rounds when I was getting drafted and everybody told me no thanks, you know? So I'm like little chip on my shoulder, maybe a big chip on my shoulder. I don't know. Um, didn't get drafted. Was a senior, was a fifth year senior, which is probably why I didn't get drafted because I was already ancient by the time, it, by the time I was playing really good in college, I was older. So I stuck it out in college because I really wanted to play in the college world series, which we, we, we fell one game short of once university of North Carolina beat us. I'll always hate them for it. Daniel Bard and Andrew Miller, golly, those guys stink, man. God dang, come on. So anyway, that was that was our, my college story. And then I stuck it out because I wanted to go to Omaha. I wanted to play in the College World Series. That's why I stayed there for five years and stuck it out. So by the time I'm done with college, I'm old and nobody wants to draft me. I get an email from a guy halfway across the world in, in Australia that says, hey, uh, we're kind of trying to get baseball back to Australia. Would you have any interest in coming over here to Melbourne, Australia, and playing in a in a winter league? And who knows what will happen? So I so I do it crazily, and based all off on emails, basically emailing some guys from Melbourne. I'm like, sure, I'll I'll do it. They, they sent me a plane ticket, so can't be fake, right? I mean, I can't be I can't be getting duped here. They sent a real plane ticket from Delta from Atlanta to Melbourne. So I got on. I got on a plane. So I get on a plane, I go to Australia, I start playing baseball in, in Australia like a couple of days a week. I get a part-time job, I get a get a job and I'm working and it's awesome. And it's 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 a it's a 
just an awesome experience. And so I play in this one tournament one weekend where uh, there's a group of guys, it's kind of like a little state ball tournament. It's a group of guys coming from kind of all over the country. And, and I play really well. We get a bunch of hits, throw the ball great, play really well. There's this guy sitting in the stands named John Stockstill, who at the time was our international scouting director for the Orioles. And there's a bunch of scouts in the stands, but, you know, whatever I played in the SEC, all of them said no to me. So those guys can get lost. I don't care about scouts. So, you know, so who, who are those guys? So at the end of the game, John Stockstill comes up to me and he says, hey, son, what part of Australia are you from? And I said, actually, I'm not from Australia at all. I'm from Alabama. He's like, whoa, whoa, okay, cool. So he goes, do you want to come to spring training? I really like how you caught the ball and received and threw the ball well. We're a couple of catchers short. Would you have any interest in coming to spring training? And I said, absolutely, before he got the sentence out of my mouth. But before he got the sentence out of his mouth, I said, send it and I'll be, I'll be there. So he, like two weeks later, through a bunch of other emails, he sent me a contract with a Bluefield Royals on it. And I signed it as fast as I possibly could and sent it back and, and, and paid all the postage and just was like super ecstatic. And so they moved my flight up from, from Melbourne to Sarasota, like an extra month or two, because I was supposed to be there for a while. But, and then I flew into Sarasota and I've been with the Orioles ever since craziest thing. I mean, all the teams that could have drafted me that I could have signed with, that could have said yes, but said no from playing, you know, at Alabama where we had, many first rounders and tons of guys drafted and it just happened to be the Orioles. It happened to be John Stockstill and I'll always love him. He later on became the form director and all that. And, uh, you know, it's just how baseball is, but I'll always love that guy for, for offering me that contract with the Orioles as a free agent halfway around the world in Australia. And, uh, and here I am been with them since 2010. So. That, that is, that's fascinating. I had no idea that like, you know, I didn't, I never know about the winter ball story about that. That's fantastic. So I, I was doing my research and I said, saw that in addition to catching, were you a relief pitcher at one point? Did you come in and throw, throw the ball a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't a relief pitcher, but I came in a game once in Lynchburg, Virginia, Orlando Gomez was the manager and we were getting our tail beat. It was, it was out of, out of reach. And it was maybe the first or second game of the series or something. And we had a really good club. We had a chance to win the league and we, we won the league that year. So, we, we had a really good club, and he didn't want to use the bullpen. And we had always joked, and he had always poked back and forth at me. And he's like, man, I want—I bet you could pitch. You know, I bet you could pitch. And whatever. I said, I'm your guy. Oh, oh, I'm your guy. If you need if you need an inning at a position player. And it, it, it always happens like that. Somebody's always joking around until that moment where he walks down to him and he goes, hey, could you give me an inning? Could you give me the eighth? We're on the road. And he didn't want to burn another guy. He goes, hey, dude, could you give me the eighth? And I go, I got you. I'm, I'm in. Go down to the bullpen. Uh, warm up a little bit, get in the game, throw up a zero. So now for the rest of my life, I get to tell all of our relief pitchers, I got a zero ERA in the Carolina League. So not, if anybody wants any advice, just, you know, who, you know where to come to, right? Because <laughs> I got one inning with a zero. And the center fielder made a diving catch. So who knows? Who knows what would have happened if it, we wouldn't have been out there, you know, playing our tail off in a 13-to-1 game. So, Yeah, lowest career ERA, minimum one inning pitch. That's That, that banner will fly forever. Uh, <laughs> when, when you talk about bringing a guy that's not a pitcher into pitch, like how often do you do that now in the minor leagues? Does that happen to the point where you're getting like beaten so bad that you have to go like look down the bench and see who maybe has pitched a little bit in the past or, or just has an awesome arm like you did back in the day? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you think about it. I mean, when you give up a really crooked number early in the game, I mean, everybody who tells you they don't think about lying, they think about it. But I think it's a little bit of a, um, you know, I, I do everything I can to not throw a position player. I mean, if I throw a position player, you can, you can, you can guarantee that I've exhausted all of my arms, um, especially at the levels that I've been coaching at, because it is a developmental level. It's about, it's about developing players. It's not about winning the game. It's not about winning games at all. So I'm not going to throw a reliever in the first game of the series so I can save my bullpen. I just I feel as though it's a little bit disrespectful and, and also, God forbid, an A-ball, an injury or something happen, which I have seen before. I have seen an outfielder pitch and hurt his arm, which is a really bad look. So I, I stay away from it. I mean, I stay away from it unless I absolutely have to. And I might have to one day. Um, um, I just think that if you got any bullets in the tank from a pitcher, you got to throw them. You got to throw them. And yeah. you know what? Tomorrow, if I got to ask the Orioles to send me four guys on an airplane, I'll do it. But but I ain't going to throw a second baseman or something unless I just absolutely have to. 
I'm trying to think, wasn't there a guy in 2019 you had in Delmarva? I think he went to the University of Florida and he he was like an outfielder that was like a pitcher in college, but he always just wanted to pitch. It was, was Nick Horvath. Nick Horvath is left hand left handed thrower, right-handed hitter. And he could really pitch. He pitched in JUCO and and uh he was like an elite thrower too. So he's one of those guys that's always so tempting. Because like I know Horvath can pitch. He pitched in the SEC and he's a lefty. Like if I get in a spot, can I bring a can I bring a lefty in to face the bottom of the lineup lefty that I know he's going to get him out because he's going to throw strikes, but he's an elite thrower from center field. He's going to throw gas and he's going to throw strikes. And so I was I would always fight that. I'm like, no, nah, Nicky, can't do it, dude. Sorry, bro. Come on. He's like, we we'd get up or down. He's like, hey, you always want me cable if you need one. If you need one, I'm like, dude, it's so tempting to use you, but. You know, I got I got a couple of relievers and I got to get an inning this week, and I don't know how I don't know when we'll get them in there. So so we got to go with them, you know, instead. But but uh, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. There's sometimes when a guy either gets thrown out of the game or we end up hitting our pitcher. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I, I think, man, it would be fun to see Nicky Horvath face this guy right here. I wonder wonder if I could bring Nicky Horvath in to face uh, Julio Rodriguez from West Virginia and see what happens. You know. Yeah, throw him a bone. So you, you never let him pitch. You just always just talking about it. Never did. It was just no. never, you know, it never presented itself to where um, I wouldn't look like an absolute idiot in the, if I, in the box score, if I did it, you know, got three relievers with a couple innings availability. I can't throw Nikki. So. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when you went back to when you played though, you played in the Orioles minor league system at the same time as so many household names. I mean, we're talking about Machado. We're talking about scope, like to, to watch those guys at the level that they were at when you guys were playing together. Like, what was your relationship like with them back then? And did you just immediately know that they were just going to, like, blow up into superstars? You know, I didn't because I had those blinders on as a player. You don't know. You're just worried about you and how you're going to get a hit that night because you're 0 for 6 or whatever like I was at the time. And you just – you don't really know. I mean, there I, I think with Machado was probably the, the one where, you, where I first – my eyes were first open to, like, oh, my goodness, like, who is that? Like – um, even though you still had your player blinders on because you worry about what you got to do, here comes this kid and he's just like got this glow about him and it's just really special. Like everything he does is special, everything. I mean, so that was my first experience with a player like that, and he uh, since has proven to be that that person. You know, my my, my story with Scopey is funny because both those guys are amazing. I love them. If I saw them today, they'd give me a big hug, and I and I love them as people. They're great people. So that that helps. I mean, that helps when your best players are also awesome people. That helps. When, when I first saw when I first saw Jonathan Scope, we were both stuck and extended. I was stuck. He wasn't stuck. And extended in Sarasota. And I, I remember thinking, dang, I'm so pissed off because I'm an extended, but this sucks. And we'd go out there and there was this really uncoordinated kid. And I'm like, who is this kid? He's uncoordinated. He can't even catch the ball. He's got a he looks like he's swinging underwater. Like, what is going on? Well, Later, later on and extended, I found out he was 16 years old. So, like, obviously, like, I was 20, whatever, too old to be an extended. And he was 16. So, obviously, he looked like he wasn't very good. I, I'm telling you, the next year he showed up, and I didn't even recognize him. It was like, I don't know who that is, but that's not the 16-year-old I just saw in extended last year. I'm talking grown man, like, a couple inches taller, bigger, swinging a bat with a tremendous bat speed, best hands I've ever seen. And it was like, oh. That's why, that's why I'm not a scout. So I'm a 23-year-old minor leaguer, right? Because <laughs> uh, didn't see that coming at all. So Scopey went like this. It was like, who is this kid? And then all of a sudden he was in the big leagues and he was like an all-star. But with Machado, it was like at first glance, it was like, oh, my, wow, like superstar, I guess. You know, I guess that's what, what one looks like. So You mentioned being in your mid-20s in the minor leagues. Like, were you ever self-conscious about that? Because, like you said, there was guys that were, I mean, 16 is an anomaly. But, like, most of the time, guys are coming in there probably three, four, five years younger than you were. Um, Were you self-conscious at that point? A little bit. I mean, when I got stuck in extended, I think I might have been 24 years old or something. And I got sent to extended, and I thought, man, like, it's time to start thinking about what what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Because here I am, and. The average age of a big leaguer is 28 and a half, but still, like, I'm looking around me and I got a bunch of bunch of kids around me. So there was definitely something to it. It was, for me, it was more of a pride thing. It was about playing the game for as long as I possibly could, making uh, making the club rip the jersey off my back because I'd played this game forever. You know, I mean, I played it since I was five and I wasn't about to just throw, throw in the towel because I was the older guy and extended. So 
Um, you know, I, I remember getting, I remember first getting called out of extended to go to Delmarva and then go to Frederick and then Delmarva and being so happy because now I was 24 and I wasn't in extended anymore. And I was around a bunch of guys that were probably 23, uh, 22, 21. But I will say at the time, our organization was not nearly as conscious of age as they are now. Like now we want to be super young every, every level. We want to be super young. We want to push guys. And I wouldn't have lasted a second in that organization because I was old when I started. But I'm, I'm thankful for the time I had. And I'm also thankful that at the time I was, I was afforded some opportunity, you know, in a ball because catching depth is, is really hard to come by. I think I think minor league depth in general is hard to come by, period. You know, it's just hard to keep guys healthy through, you know, four levels of play, five, at, the, at that time, it was six through 120 plus games. It was really difficult. So, so that's how I got my, that's how I got my foot in the door, you know. So, yeah, and also like you were a catcher for so long. I've always heard like uh, catchers make great managers. Like I don't know, like I mean, obviously it's true now, but I've always just heard that's a thing. Like, did anybody before you got into coaching say, "Hey, you you would make a great coach someday"? Or how did like the idea of coaching get like implanted into your brain? Yeah, I mean, I. I never, I, I, I think I kind of always knew, honestly, because um, just from a really early age, like I didn't know what I was going to do if I didn't do this. So um, there's a great song on the radio now by Luke Combs. It's like, what, what, what would you be doing if, you know, or it's like, well, I'd be doing this. You know, I'd have a, I'd have a Friday night crowd in the palm of my hand. Well, what would I be doing if I, I'd be doing this? I'd be doing some nine to five and I'd be coaching ball on the weekends on some travel team. That's what I'd be doing because that's who I am or what part of, part of who I am. So, I think I always, I think I always knew. I think I always knew. I didn't know if it'd be football or baseball, but I knew it'd be one of the two. You know, I'd be on the sidelines or in the dugout somewhere. Um, and then, and then, I'll, I'll never forget one, one of my one of the greatest people I've ever met was this guy named Don Werner, who was a cancer survivor and and one of the greatest human beings you'll ever come into contact with. Extreme mentor in my life. And I'll never forget one day I was playing. I was I was a player and. I wasn't playing much and I probably wasn't playing well. And I'll never forget him telling me, he's like, Hey, you're going to make a great coach one day. You're going to make a great coach one day, stick it out, grind it out. And you know, you could work in the GCL and you could work in Florida. You could work your way up. This is a good career. You ought to think about it whenever the time comes, just think about it. He's like, I'm not telling you this tomorrow, but you need just remember I told you this and think about it. And um, I was always really close with Donnie. I was always really close with him. But after that, we became super close and I would ask him things then like, hey, you know, futuristic what if questions about, hey, what if I do become a coach? What what uh, what was your journey? How did you become a coach? And, you know, Donnie was a great player. He played in the big leagues and he, he caught a no hitter and all that. So he was a phenomenal player. So nothing like me. But he was there to sort of give me that first, um, you know, that first maybe glimmer of hope that, hey, man, you could you maybe could coach a little bit one day. And if it wouldn't be for him, I don't know if I would have believed in myself enough to, to do it. But so you just love people like that. And, and also people like that is why I coach. You know, I always tell people you coach, you coach for two people, the coach that you hate and the coach that you love. That's why people become coaches. The coaches in the middle that you don't remember. Nobody ever just like I said, you don't remember. Them. But you coach because you don't want to be the guy that stunk that you hated, that that's kind of, you know, took you down a wrong path. And you do want to be the great, the greatest couple of coaches you've ever had. You want to be that guy for somebody. So Donnie was Donnie was one of those people for me. So your like your coaching journey and your path that you took to get to being a manager in the minor leagues. It was interesting because you were. I think you started as a strength and conditioning coach, right? I did. Yeah, I'll never forget it. I sat on a golf cart one day with Brian Graham, and I, and he said, "Look, you ain't gonna make a team. What do you want to do?" And I said. Dude, I want to coach. And he's like, well, you know, really all we kind of have right now is strength and conditioning. And I said, well, you know, I, I graduated from Alabama with an exercise science degree, so I can do that if you want me to. And he was like, really? And I said, yeah, yeah, seriously. I mean, I'm not making that up. I really did. And, and I said, right, right on the spur of the moment, I said, I'll go to Del Marva, I'll throw BP, I'll coach first base, I'll be the strength coach, I'll do everything. I'll do anything and everything you need me to do. I'll be the fourth coach, I'll be on a player contract, I'll do whatever you want me to do. So he goes, all right, well, and all the time in the back of my mind, I'm thinking Donnie Warner told me this was coming, you know, Donnie told me. So I was kind of ready for it because I kind of saw all the spring training working roster. This ain't going to work out. A couple of guys got a million bucks and a couple of young guys. This ain't going to work out. 
So when we had the conversation, I was kind of ready for the pitch. And I said, I want to coach. Let me coach. Let me go to DeMarvin. Let me be the strength coach. If that's all you got open, let me do it. And so Brian said, all right, I want you to go over and I want you to meet with Brady Anderson. And so I'm, I'm like, that's scary. Like, you know, that's, that's a big name that I watched as a kid play ball. And I don't know Brady from anybody except for just being kind of a little bit maybe starstruck when I see him because that's Brady Anderson, uh, Orioles legend. Uh, you know, I watched him as a kid. So, so I go over and I, and I, and I talk to Brady and I wait on Brett, wait for Brady to meet with me. And we, we developed a relationship and, and, Lucky for me, Brady loved Olympic lifting. And one of my greatest mentors at the University of Alabama, Rocky Colburn, loved Olympic lifting. So I knew a lot about it, and I did it a lot. And so I, I had been in Olympic lifting since I was about 15 years old, and then Rocky kind of really cleaned me up. And then, lo and behold, like I could clean and snatch and jerk, and I knew a lot about Olympic lifting. And I just happened to meet Brady, who loved Olympic lifting. And so here he was, he, he was, you know, kind of interviewed me. It was kind of an interview process. Hey, you go over and meet Brady, hang out with him for, I think I ended up hanging out with him about 15 days at the end of spring training. And eventually he, he kind of signed off like, yeah, this, this kid can be a, can be a strength coach. And, uh, and that was another way. I mean, sometimes you take the craziest, you know, roles when you're, you're young and you don't know what you're going to do. And that, that was one of them. I took that role as a strength coach, uh, went to Delmarva, coached first base through BP every day. Uh, spent 15 hours plus at the facility every day. And I loved every minute of it. I think I made about $15,000 that year. So it was worth it. And I loved it. For love of the game. Yeah. It's also just a great advice in general. Just say yes to things. Like I think so many people are, are so hesitant to do that kind of thing. Um, but how were you able to parlay that? So you were strength and conditioning, then hitting coach, I think. Then how did manager come about? How did you kind of parlay your, your different roles to the role you have now? <clears throat> Crazy, just the craziest turn of events happened, just like it always does, or always seems like this is a recurring story in my baseball journey. I was a strength guy. I was really lucky as a strength guy. I had, I mean, listen to the start. The starting pitching was the guys that I trained. That was really the position players, kind of maintenance, whatever. I had Dylan Bundy, um, Tyler Wilson, Parker Bridwell, Tim Berry, and Eduardo Rodriguez were my five starters that I was – when I first got out the gate, I was the Delmarva strength coach. I was chomping at the bit. Brady said, those are your five guys. Don't mess it up. Right? Now, all of them were great players. They were great players. And so I didn't even know what I was doing. I was out there just writing stuff down, being an sci exercise scientist, you know, trying to train those guys. I think that helped. That to, that, that team in Delmarva was a really talented team. So I think that helped anybody who was coaching them because – Great players make great coaches, and anybody that tells you differently is, is silly. But um, th that helped. And then what happened was uh, the next year after that, or after that year, Brian Graham, our former director at the time, came to me and he said, hey, dude, what do you want to do? You want to do the strength thing or you want to do this baseball thing? He said, Brady wants you to do the strength thing. He wants you to be a strength coach. So, you know, if you don't want to be a strength coach, you need to tell him that. And if you want to do baseball, I want you to do baseball. So I was, like, super torn, like, do I call Brady and say, Brady, I don't want to be a strength guy anymore? Because I know he's going to say he's going to get mad and he's going to, we're going to end up talking about strength. And then we're going to end up, you know, having a good conversation about strength and I'm going to be a strength guy again. And because I, because I loved, I loved Olympic lifting and I loved, at the time, I loved training guys like Dylan Bundy. He's fun, one of the funnest people I ever trained in my life. Um, so at the end of that year, I, Brian said, look, I'll offer you a job to go be the fourth coach in Frederick. Do the same thing you're doing now. Just don't be the strength guy. Instead of, instead of devoting all your energy into strength, I want you to devote all your energy into helping this young kid named Michael Ullman be the best catcher he can be. And I said, that's what I want to do. You know, I said, that's what I want to do. I, I, at the time, I knew that I really didn't want to stick it, stick with strength and conditioning uh, because it, was, it wasn't my passion. You know, I mean, I loved it, still do, still train, still like to do that kind of thing, but it just wasn't my passion. So I saw I picked that one and had to have a couple uncomfortable conversations with Brady and tell him, tell him I wasn't going to do it no more. And luckily, Brian helped me out and, uh, and, and got me in. I was the fourth coach in Frederick on a player contract, coached first, did all that. I was 
the next year I was a fourth coach in Bowie on a player contract and did the same thing, coached first base, went with the same players, same couple of catchers, try to help them develop. Next year, <clears throat> next year was big for me because I went to Delmarva to be the fourth coach again, to be my fourth year in a row now, not being on a coach contract. I was on a, I was on a player contract again, <clears throat> making pennies, which was fine because I was young and wasn't married and all was great. And then, and then I, I met a great hitting coach named Howie Clark, phenomenal dude to be around. And Howie helped me a ton in, in learning how to be a good hitting coach. And so from there, I became a hitting coach. Brian offered me another job as a hitting coach from Delmarva. So I jumped all over it again. He said, what do you think about being a hitting coach? And before he, could, before he could get out of his mouth, I said, yes, absolutely, 100%. Like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I did it. And then, you know, how I got to be the manager. I always knew I wanted to manage – but it's it's always funny when you tell people that because if you're if you're a hitting coach and you tell somebody you want to manage that don't look good you know because then they then the manager thinks you're behind them going yeah I wouldn't put that guy in you know hey I would definitely play the infield in here what's he doing so you don't want to tell nobody that you don't want to be like hey like I want to manage but I'm a hitting coach but I want to manage I mean then you got to go to the cage and you got to come on like you just got to be what you are at the time you got to. If you're the hitting coach, that's what I tell a lot of our young guys. If you're the hitting coach, you got to try to be the best hitting coach in the world in a ball. That's where they put you. Like, just be the best one in the world at, at what you're doing right now. Um, so I got out. So I was I was doing that right, and I was loving it, having fun. Kevin Bradshaw, who who's now with the Phillies as their field coordinator, and I love him to death, was supposed to be the manager in Aberdeen. He was slated to be the manager in Aberdeen. He took the club all the way through extended spring training, and. At the end of extended spring training, he went to a trampoline park with his with his daughters and blew out his Achilles. And it was the worst thing ever. I had and ever since then, I always joke with KB. I love him for it. Because when that happened, they said, well, KB can't manage everything. Who, who's going to do it? We got nobody. So I'll never forget the day the farm director came in and he called me into the office. And I thought, oh, my God, what did I do wrong now? Like, I must have pissed off somebody. Like, I must have really messed up. And he goes, hey, pack your, get, get your stuff together. I'm like, oh, Jesus, what? what? He's like, because you're going to Aberdeen tomorrow to manage their club for the rest of the year. And I said, tomorrow? What? Like, I'm the Frederick hitting coach. And I'm like, I think he's joking with me, right? The equipment manager was in there. Our current manager, Ryan Miner, was in there. And I'm just like looking around like, all right, somebody said, some, somebody, somebody's telling me to punchline. You know I mean? Like, this ain't real, you know? So they said, no, I said, I'm serious. KB tore his Achilles, and I need you to go there tomorrow and run a workout for three days and then manage the club. And I'm like, here we go. You know, like, then that's how it happened. And I felt so terrible because I had to leave behind my 13 hitters that I had worked my tail off with in Frederick, and I had built up so many good relationships with these guys. And um, and I had some I had some great, some great players, but I had some really, really good relationships, so I felt terrible about it. But I had to go to Aberdeen, and, and, and you know, that's where my managing career started. But it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And, I, and I, uh, I fell in love with managing from the first second I ever got to, to write the first practice schedule. So. And, and the rest is history. I, that's that's right place at right time. I think that's, that's fantastic. Um, I, I am curious about something because you've been with the Orioles organization, I think you've said for – well over 10 years now, many different regime changes have taken place since then. Uh, when you talk about Mike Elias and the current regime, like what did they tell you when they came in about what they wanted done? Like how they wanted things done developmentally, what kind of things they were emphasizing that maybe they weren't in the past. Like what, what kind of took place when Mike and, and Sig and all those guys took over? Yeah, it was, it was a real interesting sort of time where you know, I didn't know what to think. I was I was part of the old regime or the old two regime. I hadn't seen, you know, three GMs and four front directions and all that. So I, I didn't know what to think. But the first the first thing was that was made really clear was that we were going to use and and um, develop with with technology and data that we had not done before, which was which was completely an education for me because I, I didn't uh, have that experience. You know, I mean, I, I didn't know we have this, you know, all these, all these new pieces of technology you now that we use, whether it be Azurotronic cameras or K vest on players and biomechanical analysis and all this stuff that was, was kind of there, but we didn't use it as an organization. So 
that was the first thing that they brought in that was like, hey, look, this is we're going to use this stuff to develop players. Uh, we're not going to use one thing specifically, but we're just going to use all of it to, to help sort of everybody that we can with every piece of technology that we can. So that was the first thing that I, I, I learned about them. Um, you know, it was weird for me because I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, and, uh, at the end of that, at the end of that Aberdeen season, uh, they told me, look, you might have to go back and be a hitting coach because we don't know what's going to happen. You know, you might, you're just managed and it was great. You did a great job, but just hang in there. I don't know what's going to happen. So then when Mike got here, <clears throat> when they asked me to go to Delmarvin manage in 19, I felt really good about, about it, you know, about, okay, well, they're going to ask this, this new regime can ask and manage like here's my opportunity let me go do it let me go do this and then and then they gave me a great club which i don't know if anybody knew we were going to be a great club because we didn't even know what we had truthfully but out trots grayson rodriguez and blaine knight and all these guys drew rom and all these guys and then we were great and so i i felt from that point i felt like okay like this is this is really good like you know um this new gm this new regime gave me an opportunity and i feel like i made made the most of that opportunity that small opportunity they gave me so um ever since then it's been you know it's been just about using all of your resources all of your data all of your information use your technology and then also you know just creating an environment as a manager that that facilitates all that that sort of props up all that that um helps your developers your pitching coach your hitting coach your develop development coach your fundamentals coach help all those guys do their job you know, elite and, and you'll be fine. And, and that's, that's, that's what we've done. And, and so, so that, you know, you can't complain about any of that. So it's been a, been a pretty good, pretty fun ride. And then, and then, uh, you know, not to knock the other past players we had, cause I was one of them, but the quality of player since those guys got here kind of straight up, like quality of player top to bottom, much better, like much, much better. Now, I don't know what they're using to pick them, and I ain't going to ask, but it's good, whatever it is. As a fan, for, look from the outside looking in, I think that gives a lot of us, like, a lot of confidence um, to, to hear somebody like you talk about just, like, the path and the right direction that, that we're going on. I did have one quick question. I was so curious because, obviously, in 19, you have that fantastic year with Delmarva. You have set a franchise record and wins. And then 20, you're supposed to go to Frederick, I think. And then the season got yeah. canceled. And then like, there was a, like a great period, which I didn't know what was going on and what they had you doing. What, what did you do during the, the time that you weren't managing? Uh, and, and what, you know, what have you done since then? Yeah, it was a bad year. I mean, <clears throat> it was a fine year personally, but we were just getting ready to go to Frederick and have the best team that Frederick had ever had. And, and, and I was excited because the last time Frederick was that good, I was on that team with Machado and Scope and all those guys. And so very, very, you know, down when that season got canceled because I, I was looking, I love the city of Frederick. I love the town. We're about to take this great team into town and beat everybody. And then COVID happened. I was like, dang. So personally for me, it was an interesting year because my wife and I bought an RV. We bought this 42 foot fifth wheel, right? That was going to be our plan. We were trying to solve a living, a living arrangement uh, problem with that we have every year for you know for how, how how's our family gonna live in maryland for the summer we have a mortgage to pay in florida well this you know just this this stuff just stuff you go through just you know adversity you go through to be a minor league coach so 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 we come with this great idea hey we're gonna buy a fifth wheel we're gonna live in it we're gonna rent our house we're gonna live in the fifth wheel so we do it we rented our house we bought a fifth wheel we we we're, we're gonna live in it covid happened we're like, man, we're not even going to go to Maryland in the fifth wheel. We're still in the fifth wheel. We're in Florida. Season's canceled. We're like, what do we do? We got this, you know, we got this long, you know, fifth wheel travel trailer. We have a, we have a one and a half year old. Uh, so we travel. We, we, we drove the fifth wheel up to Alabama. We drove it all around, all around, pretty much all around the country and literally had the greatest summer of all time the greatest summer of all time we had a toddler she 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 was she went swimming in every lake in alabama and and we just camped in the fifth wheel man we we, lived, we enjoyed so many campfires and grill out every night and all that so it was great it was a great summer uh but but it was different you know nobody expected it and then i i thought i was going to work the alt site but i ended up not working the alt site which was a little disappointing but you know i mean because you always want to work you want to be asked to work everything um 
ever since I've been with this organization, I used to start work on January 6th because uh, some of the older guys, you know, Show Walter and Brian Graham and those guys used to ask me to be in town starting in January 6th and just go into the facility and just be there. Throw BP if they needed me to, catch a bullpen if I needed to, whatever. So from January 6th to February 15th, like I was the guy at the facility just there for whatever. And so you always want to be asked. You know, I mean, I was sort of ingrained to do that. So then when I didn't get asked to work outside, it sucked. And But I was pulling my fifth wheel around the country and making a campfire every night. So we had a great summer, my wife and I, and my, my daughter, Madeline. So. That's fantastic. I mean, also, I think Frederick lost their like affiliation too at some point during that, which I, I'm sure like when they were like when COVID was over and 2020 was over and you were looking at the 2021, like what, like what did they kind of talk to you about? Like you obviously went to go manage Aberdeen, which I think became just like low A at that point. Was that a weird time uh, trying to figure out like what your place would be uh, after COVID and after, you know, Frederick lost their team basically? Yeah, it was real weird. It was scary at times. I mean, you had people that, you know, organizations that were shrinking. They were losing teams like crazy. So Aberdeen became the, the high A affiliate, and, uh, and 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 Frederick lost their affiliation, um, you know, when MLB shrank down some of those teams. And it was it was, uh, it was was crazy because I didn't know what, what the organization was evaluating me off of. We didn't even have a year. We, we just had a new farm director be hired uh, named Matt Blood. And we had a billion Zoom calls, and they were all great. And I, I had a really, really good feel for, for everybody that I was Zoom calling with. But when you're a manager, your bread and butter is your clubhouse and your dugout and your guys and your elite relationships that you're building. All of that was taken away. So what, what am I going to be evaluated on to get a, 22, a 2021 contract? And that was the scary part. Like, what are they going to say? They're going to say, I did a bad job, good job, good enough job, like, what, what are we basing that off of a zoom call because i'm a manager i'm not a zoom callist or i'm not a i'm not a guy that just loved, you know I mean, i'm not a media guy well i tried tried did everything they asked and i think a lot of people were in that boat like what, what are we doing and what are we being evaluated on after not even having a season um and then lucky you know lucky enough they, they all they asked me to go to Aberdeen and manage a high a ball club and Man, it was fun. It was awesome. And I jumped all over it. And, and that facility was, was amazing. They have, have AstroTurf on the field, which I'm not a huge fan of. I like to play on grass. But, um, but yeah, that little, that little transition period between, you know, 2020 and 2021 was hard. It was, it was, a, it was a stressful time for sure. I feel like I would be doing people a disservice if I didn't ask you about two guys that you've managed in particular. I'm talking about Adley and Grayson. Uh, you've managed them. You've been up close around them for so long. Like, when we talk about the the ceiling that these guys have, like what what can we expect as they inch towards their their Baltimore debut? Well, I mean, um, ex- expect is a tough one. It's tough to put expectations on someone because it is the big leagues. You know, what I mean, it's the best players in the world, and it's AL East. You know, it's monsters now. You know, what I mean, it's it's a when you're playing in the NL West. You know, what I'm saying like this is the AL East, and it's a tough league. Uh, those two players are as good of people and as good of players as I've ever been around. And they have that same it factor that I speak of. And I talk about Machado has like a glow about him and he just does things that we're just like always just in awe of. And Adley Rushman has that. He has that. And, and Grayson Rodriguez is that talented. You know what I mean? I always tell, you know, we were, people would ask me last year when he, when he pitched for us in, in Aberdeen, which was high A, Every single time he pitched, the other the opposing manager would come out to do the lineup card the next night, and they would say, "What's he still doing here? My golly, get that guy out of here!" I'm like, "Dude, I, I hope he stays here forever. I mean, it's the greatest thing I've ever seen watching this guy pitch to a ball hitters. He's throwing a hundred before pitches." So, um, you know, I hate to say expectation. I don't know what expectations are. Uh, I just know that those two those two people are elite people, and and they have a chance to be elite players in the major leagues. So type of players that you probably would build your franchise around is, is what I think they are. As a former catcher yourself, like, you know, I think the, the pitcher catcher bond is something that's probably one of, if not the most important thing, like how in sync do you think these guys are at this point in their, in their career? Oh, uh, they're, they're, they're really in sync. And I think a lot of that credit goes to Adley Rushman because when he first 
when he first got with our club in Delmarva in 2019, he basically came to us for like the last week of the year. And probably the most, most impressive thing that I saw him do was, was completely develop a relationship with the pitching staff like that, and then just lead them like a champ. So I think, I think a huge credit to Adley is those guys are, those guys are close and they're on, they're on the same page uh, right now. Like, like you wouldn't believe. Um, and whether they, whether they play at the same level or not for X amount of days, that ain't going to matter because, because Adley has that um, sort of that it factor to really get them on the same page quickly. I mean, it probably wouldn't take you but a couple of, a couple of meetings before they would be thinking, thinking right along with each other. And that, and that's a credit to Adley. Absolutely. All right. Let's do a couple quick rapid fire questions. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, so I, I'm friends with Johnny Riser. Uh, and I have a little bit of a bone to pick with you because I went to one Ironbirds game last year and he did not start. So would you like to apologize for robbing me of a, an opportunity to see my good friend, Johnny, like make like a high rate, highlight real play. I would, I would apologize. I love Johnny Riser, man. That's, he can hit golly that, that TCU horn frog can hit and he can play defense too. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, rob a couple home runs every now and again. Uh, what have you, yeah. I mean, what have you liked from, uh, from him for, as a player standpoint? Uh, that you've seen so far? Pure hitter, pure hitter. Yeah, I could wake up out of bed and hit a line drive up the middle off 100 miles an hour. Like, just that kind of hitter. You know what I mean? Like, you just hit her. Um, and then uh, also, you know, he's he's uh, he's battled, battled some, you know, some some issues with staying on the field, and I think that's what his biggest thing is going to be. you got to keep him on the field. He's got to work hard to stay on the field, and – and if he does, he's going to be a special player. You know, he's a tough kid, loves mentality, loves makeup. Baseball instincts are right up there with anybody. But um, when you're writing out a lineup and you think, who who is going to get the big hit? Riser is the first guy that pops in your mind. Like, if they bring if they bring the closer in, the Stone 100, Riser. If, if you're starting versus the Yankees, and I don't even remember the guy's name, the Stone 100, Riser homered off of Like, you need, you need a hitter, Riser's your guy. Oh yeah, it was a uh, Cindergard when he was at uh in in. Well, he homered against Cindergard in Aberdeen, but I'm talking about yeah. the prospect. I can't remember his name. And I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. We went to face Hudson Valley this year. Johnny was playing for Aberdeen. We went to face Hudson Valley, and they had some of the best minor league pitching I've ever seen. Johnny Riser homer, homer guy still on 100 with a 96 mile hour slider. Riser takes him deep like he's throwing 80. Pure because energy. he just hit. He just yeah. hit, man. He just hit. He's like, you know, it reminds me of Nick Marcakis. Now, that's a big one. That's a big one, I know. But Marquez can just hit. He can show up on live BP the first day and not even hit off a tee and hit a bullet off somebody. And Riser's just like that. I like, yeah, roll out of bed and get you 300. That's that. I think that's the kind of player we're looking at here. Uh, I'll like, tell him you said that. That's that He's going to yeah. like that. Um, so I did a little reading back when you're uh, going back to Alabama for a second. Uh, I saw, did you guys play a tournament in Cuba? Was that, what was that like? Yeah. We did. We played a Cuban international like friendly tournament. It was it was phenomenal. This was back when you couldn't go to Cuba. They still had an embargo, and it was like it was like we had these agents around us all the time. It was it was it was crazy, it was crazy really. We had like these police escort type deals everywhere we went. But we played this team. Funny story. I'll, I'll try to keep it quick because I know we're probably running short here. But we we played this team. We show up and they brief us. They have these Cuban historians and they and they. Cuban baseball historians. Baseball is phenomenal in Cuba in a beautiful country. I mean, one of the most beautiful places you've ever seen. Baseball historian says, listen, guys, I know y'all are a pretty good college team, but we have big leaders on this team, a bunch of big leaders. And he said, but you guys don't expect to even play a game that's even close here. And so we were like, is he saying we're going to blow them out? Or is he saying they're going to blow us out? We're like, what's he talking about? So he says, they're going to blow you guys out. They're going to beat you by 15 every time. So we all laughed. We were laughing like, no, they ain't. They can't blow us out. Like, we had big league players all over the field, you know, future big league players all the time. We get, we get, we play the first game. A good buddy of mine, Kent Mathis, hits like a three-run homer after I walked, and we tie him five to five. And there's a bunch of guys you never heard of on the field. Cuban, like, must have been like an 1800 team or something. Good players, good looking players, but we tied them. So we, we come in and the same couple of Cuban baseball historians come in and they're like, we just want you guys to know like that was the greatest thing we've ever seen. They're acting like we won the World Series because we tied them. And they said, but remember how we told you guys you wouldn't win a game? He's like, they, they just flew in a whole other team. So you guys are going to play the Cuban national team tomorrow. And we're like, 
cool, let's play them. They beat us like 20 to one and like 17 to one the next day, the next two games, it was a three game series. So I always joke around because the, the second team we played, it, it had major league all-stars everywhere. Sesame has played, Rudia played. Uh, the, the Cuban baseball historian was sitting in the dugout telling us all about Jonas Cespedes. He was the center fielder for this for game two and three. They had the best catcher I've ever seen. I don't even know his name. Uh, Martin, the guy that played for the Dodgers, was the second baseman in game two and three. And when I say they brought out some arms that like I've never seen before, they brought out a big league bullpen on us. And every single guy after the sixth inning was throwing 100 with some sharp off-speed stuff. I mean, we had no chance. They did this like 17 to 1, like 20 to 1 or something. It was ridiculous. I don't even know how we got our run. Because um, we were a bunch of college kids playing against a bunch of pros, you know. Um, and so, anyway, Cuba was phenomenal. We, we, all, we also got to watch a game uh, where the Industrialis, which is like their Yankees, played somebody in downtown Havana. It was phenomenal. I mean, great, great, great baseball country. Wow, what an experience that must have been. So, you manage a lot of guys now. Is there like a couple that stand out as like the funniest? Like even go back to like Delmarva and all these other guys. All I heard was like they're all just characters. Who are some of the guys that stood out as being uh, the most funny? Uh, Riser is pretty funny. He's hilarious. Now he's a he's a character. Uh, um, JC Encarnacion was one of the funniest people. Man, he was he always had he always had something going. Uh, you know. Grayson Rodriguez is funny. He's he's he doesn't try to be funny, but he's funny to be around. So um, I'm trying to think about who else. Was, was, I mean, you're gonna have things come up, you know, um, through such a long season where somebody's gonna say something. But um, and I'm trying to remember. You know, one of the funniest people I've ever been around is Buck Britton, our AAA manager. I played with Buck and Frederick for a little while. One of the funniest people I've ever been. I mean, just not trying to be funny, but he just had, he just can loosen a room with the best of them. One guy that I really wanted to go, this is going back to summer of 19. I really wanted, I think it's Nick Bruner, the guy from like Harvard. Yeah, I, heard he was like the fun, I heard he's the funniest guy ever. And then he just retired. Yeah. What, like, he retired, man. He's, I, I hated to see him go. I remember him pitching for us. Had a big time job offer. And I think like downtown New York City or something, because he's a really brilliant guy. Went to Harvard, you know, pitched for us. But, uh, you know, I, it's, it's hard to – it's a tough question for the manager. See, I wish you'd ask me that question if I had, like, been the hitting guy. Because the hitting guy always knows the team, like, a little bit better. That's why you need good hitting guys and good developmental coaches because they tell the manager everything if they're good. But, see, the manager doesn't know anything about the bullpen's, the bullpen's uh, personality. Because when the manager walks in, all the bullpen just goes like this. You know, like, like super the serious. Here. Yeah. The boss, hey, he might call, he might call down. I mean, most of the time, it's really not like that. You want to hear what they say. And because being in the bullpen was some of the funnest times I ever had in my life when I was sitting down in the bullpen for the game, catching the guys, whatever. You get to figure out who the who's who. Well, the manager never sees that because when the manager, there's any chance that the manager's within earshot, everybody's just all business, which is, which is good. But like, you don't hear the joke, you know, like, oh, oh, the manager's going to say the punchline. You know, like, so. Oh, that's, that's so funny. So I have one last question for you. The last time we talked, uh, I got a little workout advice and I was wondering if you can give me one last workout tip. You know, this is for somebody who hypothetically has a hard time keeping weight on, uh, you know, 5'10 or like 5'10 ish, 140 just has never gained an ounce in his entire life. Like, what would you tell like somebody who's potentially being called string bean his entire life? What, what would you tell somebody like him to try to, to help not just be 140 pounds the rest of my life? Oh, uh, no. I mean, look, I mean, that's not a bad thing. You know, I mean, come on. As, as you get older, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to love that. You're going to love that string being when that milkshake doesn't put that, you know, doesn't put that spare tire on you. Um, I mean, you know what? I mean, you know, a lot of people say, you know, car, carbs are the biggest enemy. So just carb out, man. Go get you a big old double with some French fries and a frosty like once a week. Not the best health advice, but if you're trying to put on a couple of pounds and you do the work, you can do that, you know? It's super frustrating. Do you see that with guys you coach too, that like you have a guy and it's like, wow, I just wish you would add a little bit more muscle or like, I wish you would fill out, I guess is what like the professional term is. Like he really needs to fill out. Like, 
at, does a former strength and conditioning coach and you kind of take over and you're say like, Hey man, you know, let's go, go to, go get a frosty every now and again. <laughs> you know what? So, sometimes it does probably the other way around though. I, I see what, what, out of my lens that sometimes it's more about how they move and how their running form is uh, or, or vice versa. Like, man, I wish that guy would trim it up a little bit, but the beauty of our, the beauty of our game now is that so many people are being evaluated with so such good metrics it really don't matter what you look like. You could be a string bean and you have a high OPS, you can have a job. You know what I mean? Like you're going, you're going to do it. Same thing with pitching stuff. You got, you got good, good weapons and your stuff grades out good stuff wise. Well, you look however you want. And, and that's the beauty of where baseball is going. Um, but I must say sometimes when I see a guy that looks really bad in uniform, I'm like, man, really? That dude can hit. He needs to trim it up. That's what I'm saying. You have like a guy where it's just no legs and it's just all pants. It's just all fabric on him. That's just like, <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's hard to walk like, you know, baseball uniforms are supposed to make everybody look great, but then you just have the guy. It just looks like he's wearing Jinkos, but it's not, it's just his legs. So, uh, you hey, know, sometimes for major league baseball uniforms make you look a lot better than minor league ones do. Well, then Rollins ain't, ain't the majestics. I know that. <laughs> all right. Last, last question. Uh, and then, you know, we'll all let you run. I, I'm so sorry for Alabama. I, I tweeted at you that I, I put a, a hefty wager, a responsible wager on Alabama to win versus Georgia. How, how What's the mood of an Alabama fan right now? I think we're good. I mean, I think that all, all the, the same Alabama fans just understand how, how great of a time it is to be an Alabama football fan. You know, what we, what we accomplished by, by beating Georgia in the SEC championship game and also beating Auburn. I think I think most of the people that I talk to are really proud of the season we had. It was a great season. It was a great season. It was another, you know, we won a, our quarterback won a Heisman Trophy, never been done before. Uh, well, it's nobody, no, truthfully, nobody in Alabama cares about a Heisman Trophy. They want to win a national championship. But, but the thing about it is the, the SEC, I think everybody's saying the same thing. The SEC and the playoff committee has got to do something. Because, I mean – you can't play Georgia for the SEC championship game and then turn around and play them in the national championship game. It's it's nice, but you're just not going to beat them. They're just too good. You know, I mean, Alabama and Georgia are two – the opponents, you're not going to beat the same team twice. And, you know, we happened to beat them because we had to beat them to get in, and then they beat us because they're a great team. And I think that's sort of what Alabama fans are feeling like. Dude, Georgia's a great team, great team. You know, Kirby Smart coaches just like Nick Saban. He's, he's a Nick Saban carbon copy. And – and he's got a great thing going. So, like, I don't think any Alabama fans are mad because we got beat by Georgia. Now, we got beat by La Monroe again. There'd be some mad people up in here. But if we, <laughs> hey, but if we get beat by Georgia, who's an elite team, we got 20 NFL players, like, anybody mad, you know? We'll, we're going to get somebody next year, though. <laughs> You're right. Because, uh, gosh, yeah, it just Alabama, the expectations are so high right now. Uh, obviously as they should be because you guys are the best team in the, in, in the history of college football. But yeah, it does kind of sting when, when little brother Georgia and Kirby Smart and that visor comes in and just, it just <laughs> whips it's just, it just whips. It. Um, but this, this has been amazing, man. So we're looking forward to Bowie's season. Uh, I live like 10 minutes away, but when the, when the games get going, I'd love to come to, uh, you know, check out the dugout and say hi. Yeah. Come, come down anytime. Get, get down there and, and say hi. Every time you're in the building, we'd love to have you. Oh, gosh, that's the best. You're the man. Kyle Moore, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and yeah, man, this has been a ton of fun. I've been really looking forward to catching up. Uh, I Like, I, you know, 2019, we had a great time, but this has been a lot of fun also. So thank you, sir. No, absolutely. Thank you. No, no, no problem. And roll tide and let's go O's.